But let's pray before we open God's word together. If you would, bow with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is eternal and that it is living and that it is active. And it teaches us and it corrects us and it encourages us. And I pray that you would do those things this morning through your spirit as we open your word. We pray that as we spend time looking at uh, what you've told us, what you've done, what you've shown us, I I pray that we would see more clearly uh, your majesty and how you love us and your grace. And I pray that we would just see that ever so clearly, that we'd see it afresh this morning as we open your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, my next door neighbors right uh, to the to the right of my house, right next door, is a young couple that's only been married for, uh, I think, two or three years now. And they moved in about a year and a half ago. Joanne and I have gotten to know them a little bit. Well, they just had their first child. They had a a brand new baby, I think right at the very end of December, or the beginning of January, literally a month ago. And, uh, and as I've talked to them and I've watched them and, and as they were preparing for that and now the baby's here, uh, you, you can you can kind of guess what's going on right now. One month, first baby, uh, you see them and they're they're kind of like in a catatonic state all the time. Like, hey, Trevor. And he's just kind of just like oblivious to everything. He's, he's not quite awake. And, and I've talked to him a few times. And I've talked to his wife one time as she was walking one day with with the baby and was asking how it's going. Oh, it's great. And it's wonderful. And we haven't slept and we've been holding the baby and every little noise he makes, we run and get him. And I go, yes, yes. I remember this. I remember with, with our first, with Asher, we were that way. We, we held them all the time. And, and I still say, uh, the first month is like one day. It's just one big long day and it all like goes together and you don't even know what day it is. And it all kind of, and like the sleep deprivation and all that goes with that. And so I was talking to them about it. And here's their first baby. And, and uh, they asked, his wife asked me, she said, well, what, what, what advice? You've got three kids. And I said, well, there's, there's going to come a point here, this beautiful little baby you want to hold all the time. You're going to have to put them down sometime. You're going to have to let them sleep at some point, And you're going to have to let them kind of learn to go to sleep. And, and you can't go pick them up every time. And, and, and you learn this with, with the, the first one, or, or we did with with Asher is it's like he makes every little noise and you run in there and then you train him that, that when he makes a little noise, you run in and give him a bottle. And so every night at two o'clock, he wakes up expecting a bottle and, and all those kind of things. And there comes this point where, and not when they're a brand new little baby, but as they get older and they can sleep through the night and all those things that you have to actually let them learn to cry themselves to sleep. Uh, it's, it's self-soothing. That's a, that's a thing they have to learn and that's a good thing. And it is so hard. And on your first kid, I don't think anybody really does it or does it very well. And everybody tells you that, but you go, okay, okay. And then you run in there and you get them anyway. And, and, and the truth is what happens if you don't, it, it can become miserable because after, you know, they're a year old and you're still going to get them in the middle of the night and all those kind of things. And you have to learn that at some point. And, and if you don't, there's kind of consequences that go with it. And so sometimes we look at that and it's very hard to say, to tell a new mother, you're going to have to let your baby cry or they're going to need to learn to self-soothe. They're going to need to learn to put themselves back to sleep. It's a skill that they have to learn. And it's very difficult to hear that. And it's hard for us to hear that, but it's best for them. It's best for them to learn how to do that and to be able to put themselves back to sleep and to be able to sleep through the night. They'll feel better and you'll feel better. Everything will be a whole lot better if you do that. And so I say that this morning, I was thinking about that with the new baby and thinking about it with Asher when we were little. But we see a very similar principle through scripture. And we're going to look at this today in Judges chapter two, that God allows things that seem hard at different times. He allows consequences to come in our life because it's what's best for us. And he uses that. And what I want us to look at and think about this morning and what I'm going to say is that consequences that God uses, 
The consequences as a result of our sin in our lives, the consequences that come are ultimately means of grace that God uses in our life. And I know sometimes when I say that and you maybe hear that, you go, what? That doesn't seem like uh, grace when we think about hard things coming as a result of our sin. But we're going to see what God says to the people of Israel who have not followed him completely. And he tells them of a consequence that's now going to happen because of their disobedience. But as we think about that and look at that, what I want us to think about is that God's actually using this. It's actually his grace to bring them back and to show them and to teach them things. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We started last week in Judges, if you were here with us. Judges goes ways back Old Testament. And what we see in this time is the people of Israel are coming in to take a land. And this land has mostly been conquered. Joshua leads the people in, but then he gives them direction. Joshua is old and he's about to die and he's about to step down. He's no longer going to be the leader. And he tells them to finish the work that God's given them. And we looked at this last week. And he says, I want you to finish everything that I've told you to do. You're to drive out all the false idols, all the things in this land. You follow me. And so what we looked at last week in Judges chapter one is they don't do that. They make lots of excuses for their disobedience. We, we, we looked at those and just real briefly last week, we talked about how our common sense will trump what God clearly tells us. And we saw that in Judges. They looked and they saw that they had iron chariots and they said, this won't work. We can't do this. And so they started to make uh, excuses on why they didn't follow through with what God told or, or we saw that it was more convenient, convenient Trump's obedience. It's more convenient just to allow some of the people to stay in the land instead of fully do what God's told them. And so we see all these little, seemingly little things in the first chapter of Judges. And it seems like all these little uh, just uh, uh, things that they let slide, that they don't follow through all the way. And if you skim Judges 1, you think, well, they didn't do all of it, but it's not that bad. It doesn't seem so bad. Yeah, they didn't follow through all the way, but it's a few little things here and there. And then you get to the beginning of chapter two and the angel of the Lord comes and, and Chris just read it for us just a second. And if you look at verse two of chapter two in Judges, this is what it says. And so the angel of the Lord comes and he says, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But then he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? And so God clearly says, you didn't obey me. You didn't do what I told you, even though they're seemingly small things, seemingly small things that they just kind of let go, uh, small compromises over and over. God comes and he says, no, you didn't obey me. You didn't follow me in these things. And then the very next part of verse three says, so now right? you didn't obey me. So now here's what's going to happen. He says, so now there's consequences for your disobedience. And so last week, what we looked at is the excuses we make that lead to our disobedience. This week, I want us to think about the consequences that come when we are disobedient. And, and what I want you to hear and what I want you to say, I know that sounds like kind of a downer of a topic, right? Last week was all about our disobedience. And this week's all about our consequences. And you go, well, that sounds terrible. But the truth is, when we really look at what God's teaching us in this, is that it's a means of his grace, He's teaching us and he's using this and the consequences. And that's what I want us to look at. And so here's the questions we're going to ask. Simply this. Why does God allow consequences? Big picture. Big idea. Why does he allow consequences? Secondly, how does God use them in your life and in my life? How does he use consequences in our life? And then lastly, how does he ultimately resolve it? 
Right? So why big picture? How does he use it? And then how does he ultimately resolve it? And so let's start with just why big picture allow consequences. And so I just read that to you. He says, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done in verse two? But then in verse three, he says this. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. And when you read that, you can go, well, that seems kind of harsh. And and here I'm telling you, consequences are a means of God's grace. And you can read that and go, how? Why is that the case? And I want us to think big picture before we get specifically to what's happening here. But big picture, why does God allow consequences? Why are there consequences when we uh, disobey him, when we go against him? And I want us to think very big picture first. When we read uh, in scripture, it tells us, and we say this often, that all things were made to orbit around God. He's the center of all things. So what Bible teaches us, That's the picture that's there, that God is the center. And the picture is when we rebel against God being the center of all things and we make ourselves the center, we make other things the center. We're going against the very fabric of how the world is made. God designed and made the world and he is the center of all of it. And when we don't do that, when we go against the way that is made, we begin to have that happen. We're going against what he has clearly told us. I often point you to this because I think it's good and I think it's helpful for us. Each week there's questions in the bulletin that go with the catechism we use. New City Catechism is what it's called. It's 52 questions that go throughout the year. You can look it up on their website and it's got really good videos that go with it and explanations. And it gives you very simple, straightforward uh, explanations of different theological, doctrinal things that are so important in Scripture. And, And the 16th question. I I quote this a lot and I don't often tell you that's what it is, but I'm telling you so you can go look at it. It's really good. Is what is sin? And and the answer is sin is rejecting or ignoring God and the world he created. Taking God from his rightful place is the sinner and moving him out of the sinner. Right. The rest of that, when it talks about sin, says uh, the rest of the answer goes down to the end and it says, and because of that, we die and the world is disintegrating. That's what it tells us. The world is basically falling apart and the wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. And so that's the picture. When we remove God from the sinner, things start to kind of fall apart. The world was made to orbit around God. He was made, it was made for him to be the sinner. And when he's not, we're going against the very way in which it was made. And so when we think about consequences of ignoring him, consequences of sin, that makes perfect sense. But the hard part is when you say that God is made to be the very center. He is made for us to worship him. We are made to be all about God. A lot of people shudder at that thought. I don't really want a God like that. God seems very egotistical. Right. I've heard people talk that way or or I'll give you a good example. I heard uh, Oprah Winfrey talk about why she left the Christian church. Right. At one point, she was raised in a Christian church and she walked away from it. And she said the reason she was is she was at church one week and her pastor was talking about God being a jealous God. And she said, I don't want a God that's a jealous God. I don't like that idea. Why would I want a God who's jealous? Now, here's the problem when we do this. When we say God's egotistical or we say God's a jealous God or we say those things and we say, I don't like that. All throughout Scripture God is relating himself to us in human terms because he is so far above and beyond us in every way. We are made in his image. We are like him in some ways, but he is infinitely greater than us. And so he talks to us 
in terms of I'm a father, I'm a shepherd, the images that scripture uses. And he does that because God is condescending so that we can understand some things about him. And so the Bible used human terms about God, but God is not us. And what happens is when we hear jealous, when we hear God has to be the center, we put it in human terms. And we think what it would be like for a person to say, I have to be the center. Right? If I stood up and said that today, you'd all go, okay, I'm not coming back there. That guy's crazy. Right? What an, what an egotistical guy he is. That's what you would say, right? If I stood up and said that. The problem is God is not like us. God is so far beyond us. And I think when we get frustrated with God as a jealous God, we're putting it in human terms. We're bringing him down to make him like us. He's not like us. He's not someone that's petty jealousy like we are. Right? God's jealousy is he's jealous for his glory because that's what's best for you. When I'm jealous for my glory, it's just because I'm obnoxious. It's not what's best for you. It's not good at all for you. But when God says, I need to be the center, it's what's best for you. And so we miss that picture oftentimes when we start to talk about that. God is so far above and beyond us. And so when we think about God has to be the center, and when he's not, we're going against the very fabric of how the world is made. The picture is simply this. The reason that is the case is because he is the center of the world. That's the truth. There was nothing except God and he spoke and everything came into existence. And now he upholds it by the power of his word. He is the center. He is the very center of all of it. And so when we talk about consequences from removing God as the center, we are really in in the most literal way going against the way the world was made. And there is going to be disintegration and there's going to be falling apart and there's going to be heartache and there's going to be all those things because we've removed the sinner from its rightful place. So consequences are going to happen when we do that. It's like anything. When you use something in a way it wasn't created to be made, that's what happens. I was working on my basement a couple of years ago. I finished my basement and I was downstairs and I was working on it. And all of a sudden I can't find my hammer. One of the boys had taken it off and I was almost done. And so I picked up a uh, tape measure, right? Big, heavy tape measure. It's plastic. It's, and I used it as a hammer, right? And I got the nail in a little bit, but you can guess what happened. It cracked the back of it. And then I was mad that I used the, I can't believe I used that. And, and, it, and it came apart, right? And over time, the tape measure was cracked and it was broken and later rain got in it. It fell apart, basically. And, and that's a very silly example, but you can see what happens when you use things in the way they weren't created to be used. Right? When you use a tape measure that's made out of plastic for a hammer, it's going to end badly. It's the same thing when we walk through life removing God from his rightful place. It's going to end badly. There's going to be consequences. And so just as we start big picture, God is made to be the center. And when we remove him from that, when we ignore him in his world, there will be consequences. It's the way the world is made. But there's also a picture I want you to think about in Romans chapter eight. And if you want to turn there with me, if you're using the pew Bibles, it's on page 613. If you're not using the pew Bibles, I don't know what page it's on. So you'll have to find it yourself. But Romans eight it's towards the back. It looks like this in my Bible, that far from the back, if that helps you. But Romans, Romans chapter 8 says this, Romans 8, verse 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. I want you to listen very carefully to that verse 20, what it tells us. Paul writing to the Romans and he says this, that in verse 20, creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. I want you to think about what's being said there. I've wrestled with this verse for a long time, for a lot of years. And the picture that is there is it talks about creation being subjected to futility by him who subjected it in hope. And so what it tells us is since it's been subjected to futility in hope that it's God himself who subjects creation to futility. Go, Wait a second. How does that work? What, why would he do that? Why would he build futility as, as sin enters into the world and it comes in? Why would there then be futility in creation? In the picture that we have here, and I think when you work through that passage and you see that, is God does that because he's allowing us to see the ends of what our rebellion is. He's letting us see a world that is that is under the weight of the futility of sin. And he's showing us, he says, this is what the world looks like when you remove me from the center. He's showing us what that looks like. That he's letting us catch a glimpse of the horror that is sin. Sin is ignoring God and his world. And he says, when you ignore me, this is what it looks like. And he's showing us that picture And he does so because he is gracious and he's loving. Now, that may sound like, well, wait a second, how'd you get to that? He allows the futility of sin to to come into all creation because he's loving. Because he's showing us that it was never meant to be with him removed from the sinner. And that's ultimately loving. We will shrivel and die without him being the sinner. And so God shows that even in creation. It's the same thing he does in Judges 2. You've disobeyed my voice. You have not listened to me. So now I say I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. God says, "Okay, you've ignored me. You've decided to bring these other religions in. You've decided to synchronize with this awful practices that are there. And so I'm going to let you see what it looks like. I'm going to allow you to feel the consequences of your rebellion. And in doing so, he's teaching, he's showing us of what it looks like when he's not the center. And it is not a pretty picture. He allows that to come in. There's a wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis. I say this often. There's always a wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis. But this is, this is actually one of my favorites. I love uh, this picture of what he says. And he says it this way. It's actually in your bulletin this morning. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He allows futility to come in and be the ends of our sin to awaken a deaf world. This is what it looks like when you replace me from my rightful place as the center of all things. That is ultimately God's grace. And so I want us to think about that's a big picture, big picture. Why allow 
consequences. He's graciously showing us where our sin and rebellion lead when we remove him from his rightful place. How does that work in our life? How does that work out in your life and in my life? And I think there's something that he says even right here to the people and judges that helps us to see this. Right? He says, you've disobeyed. So now I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side. And when I read that, what I see is a wonderful picture of what idolatry looks like. Now, when we read this and we put it in context of judges, we're talking about very real idolatry synchronizing with bad religions, worshiping false gods, doing what we would think of Old Testament idolatry. But we all slip into idolatry in different ways. And we say this often. You can go back to your your catechism questions. It's actually in there as well. Idolatry is making even a good thing, making anything to be the ultimate thing, putting it in God's place. And when we do that, it's like a thorn in your side. It's not going to end well. When you put anything in God's rightful place, it's going to be a problem, right? I use this example often because it's, uh, I know my own heart. It's the easiest place I can slide into that idolatry. When good things become ultimate things, my children, right? We, we often say kids are a gift from God. Absolutely. It is a wonderful thing that God has given you, right? Children are a wonderful gift. But when your children Take the place of ultimate in your life. That means they're become an idol. If you love your kids more than you love God, or you center more around your kids than you do around God, your children have become an idol in your life. Now, the hard part, the subtle part is you love your kids so much that can happen very easily. It's good to love your kids. It's good to want to take care of them. It's good to do all those things. But when it slides into that ultimate place, it becomes a problem. You know, when you when your child becomes the center of your life and your happiness and your joy and your identity is so tied to your child, your life is going to be up and down and all over the place. It's going to be like a thorn in your side. You will never fully uh, have a fullness of joy in that. And it's not because your kids aren't great. Your kids may be wonderful, but your kids cannot bear the weight of being the center of your universe. It cannot happen. And if you put them in that place, it will be a disappointment. It will be kind of like what God says there. It'll be a thorn in your side. Your kid could be wonderful and then they get cut from the soccer team and it's like your whole world comes crashing down. That's a silly example, but you want, oh, they're the whole sinner. It'll be a thorn in your side. It's the same thing with so many other things. It'd be the same thing with the job. If you make the job the center of your life, and even if you become one of the most successful people in the world, whatever it is, let's say you get your dream job and then someone pays you millions and millions of dollars for a really long time to get it, then what? Then you retire. And it's not there anymore. Right? You get old and somebody comes in behind you and they replace you and now you're expendable and you're no longer the guy. All of a sudden it is a huge thorn in your side because you made an idol out of something that cannot bear the weight of being the sinner. Same thing here. God says, you've decided to go against me and to bring these other things in. And now it's going to be a thorn in your side. We see that picture over and over. And I just say this. It is God's grace 
that he never lets you get complete satisfaction out of something that can't give you complete satisfaction. The fact that it becomes a thorn in your side and it can't satisfy you is God's grace. I know that doesn't sound like it. It certainly doesn't feel like it, especially when you're in the middle of it. But that's the picture he is allowing to see us. He's allowing us to see things as they actually are. He's allowing you to see that these idols can never fulfill you. That is gracious. That is loving. Right? If you just allow somebody to go off and think that they've got it all together when they don't, that's not loving. And so God is gracious and loving and allow us to do that. And so when we think about how it works out in our life. When we put other things in God's place, God allows us to see the futility of that. Now, the hard part is oftentimes it can take a long, long time. You can make the kids the center of your life for a long, long time. And you will have lots of ups and downs and hardships and it will be difficult. But because you love them so much, you can keep them there for a long time. And you can keep acting that way. But what happens, I think, over years of those ups and downs and those hardships that God's preparing your heart. He's he's seeking to lead you to repentance. Showing you the futility of putting other things at the center. And oftentimes it takes someone else coming alongside you and speaking truth in your time of need. You need other people to come alongside and go, that's not going to be it. But sometimes it takes a really long time. If you tell a guy that just got out of college, 25 years old, and he's got a great job and a brand new car and all these things, and you go to him and you say, this job cannot be the center of your life. It'll never satisfy you. He'll laugh at you. Okay. Thanks. I'm doing all right. And it doesn't matter who you are to tell him that. He'll go, okay, thanks. I'm good. Right? 30 years later. When he's lost his job and he's got another job and now he has a worse job and things aren't quite so good. And then you say, if your job is the center of your life, you're going to be sorry. He goes, yeah, you're right. Sometimes it takes a long time for that to happen. And God uses that. He uses the futility of idols in our life to prepare our heart and to turn us back and to point us to him. And it's all his grace in doing that. I think of the best example I can think of. I've used this example before, but uh, uh, Super Bowl Sunday today, so this is a, a good example. Tom Brady, if you ever saw the interview with Tom Brady, who's won the Super Bowl twice, I think, Mike, twice, three, three times. Yeah, Mike's a New England guy, so uh, three times, right? So uh, MVP a couple times, top of the game, everybody looked at Tom Brady, and there was an interview on 60 Minutes. And the guy says to Tom Brady, the question was, what is it like to be Tom Brady? Millions of dollars, top of your profession, beautiful wife. Everybody loves Tom Brady, wants to be Tom Brady. What's it like? And he went, eh, it's okay. And the guy went, what? You're Tom Brady. And his question, and I still remember this, if you've ever seen this interview so vividly. He goes, huh? And then he goes, uh, this can't be all that there is. Right? Super Bowl MVP with millions and millions of dollars, everything you could ever want. And he goes, this can't be all there is. And the guy interviewing him goes, well, what else is there? And he goes, I wish I knew. And he just sits there. I mean, that's the end of the interview. The, the, the quarterback, the Super Bowl MVP that's got everything. And he goes, that's not all there is. The futility of making anything else the center in your life becomes so crystal clear when you watch that interview. 
everything the world says that will make you happy, he's got. And he goes, I wish I knew what else there was, because this can't be all that there is. And so the picture is this. God allows the futility of idols in our life. He allows the consequences of our sin. He shows us those things. Those are ultimately his grace. He's pointing us to there's something so much greater. There's something so much more than our own fame or our own money or our own whatever it may be. Fill in the blank for you. And then if you seek to put those things as the center, they will leave you wanting. And that is God's grace. And so when he says to the people in Judges, you haven't obeyed me. And so I'm now going to let you see this. It's actually his grace. He's showing them. This is where it ends. This is where it goes. I'm going to let you have this and let you see this for a time so that you see what the ends of that are. And as we read through, and this gets us to the last question, how does this ever resolve? As we read through the book of Judges, what we see is God does use this. It is his grace over and over. We see this cycle over and over in Judges. The people are with God. They're following God. They forget him. They synchronize with the people. They fall into false worship. They do all these other things. And then the consequences come and then they cry out to God. Oh, we're miserable. And so God raises up a judge and the judges come and they lead them and they come back and everybody comes back to God. And it's good for a time. And then they do it all over again. Right. That's that's the cycle of judges. You see it over and over in this book and you see that picture. But the problem is, how is there ever true repentance? How does that cycle ever stop? And as you look at it and as you look in judges, what you see is fallen, broken leaders. And they come and they're faithful to God and God uses them, even though they're not perfect. And even though they've got all kinds of problems and and God uses them and he brings them back. But it's short lived. For just a time, things get better and they follow them, and then they die and then everything goes back to the way it was. And it's always partial and it's never a full resolution when you read the book of Judges. It's the same thing in Samuel. And it's the same thing in Kings and it's the same thing in Chronicles and it's the same thing all the way through the prophets. You see this over and over these little cycles of up and then back down repentance and then they fall back and over and over. And the reason that we see and and, and the reason that it's never a full resolution is there's all these fallen, broken ways and it's, it's shadows. It's not quite the fullness of how we make God the sinner. Because what happens is when fallen, broken leaders come, and yes, they're pointing them back to God, but they're still kind of the centerpiece. And you see that over and over. It's the same thing today when we decide to make a, a politician or any man or any preacher, your favorite preacher, your favorite evangelist. You make them the center and you look to them. Or, or you make uh, science That's what people like to say today. That's going to answer all the problems. All those things may help in some way, but it's never going to be a full resolution. And so as you look and judges, you see this over and over. But the answer is there. It's kind of under the surface. The answer doesn't ever fully come until the perfect judge comes. Underneath all of this is pointing to Jesus. Every bit of it. As God shows the consequences of our sin and the need and the futility of him not being the sinner until he comes down himself and he walks in and he makes himself the sinner and he shows us and Jesus will never have the resolution. When we try to put anything else in the rightful place that is his, it will always be disaster. And we never see the resolution of that until Jesus comes. And then he comes and he says, I'm here. 
I've come to do what no one else could do, what no man can do. And now I'm going to do it for you and I'm going to give it to you as a gift. I'm going to restore you to God. I'm going to make God the center. And then when you put your faith in me, I'm going to come inside in my spirit and I'm going to remake you from the inside out. I'm going to show you how I'm the center of all things. And when he does that, everything else starts to take its rightful place. And the futility still comes because even as you become a believer, there's times where you move them over here. Yeah, I know you're the sinner, but I'm going to slide you over here for just a season. And then the futility comes and it struggles and it breaks down and then he takes his rightful place back and it happens. And we're still doing it and we will until he returns. But the ultimate answer is not in any man or any person, but it's in Jesus Christ coming and showing us what that looks like. And so as we read through Judges and as we study through Judges together, what we're going to see over and over is fallen, broken people and in the midst of these cycles. But underneath all of that, it's always pointing ahead to what Jesus will come and finish. And we still live in that tension. We still live in the tension of there are consequences to our sin. There are still problems of going. But the wonderful truth of all this is that Jesus has paid the ultimate consequences of all our sins. When we put our faith in him, we can have an assurance of what is to come and what he's going to finish. And so it's not just a hopeless cycle. It's a cycle that comes to an end in Christ. And we have that to look forward to. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for the depths of your grace. That even in the consequences to our sin. Even in the way you allow things to come into our life when we rebel against you, that even there you are at work. You are at work to point us back to who you are and the ways that you love us and how you offer us forgiveness. I thank you that you love us so much that you don't leave us just in our our pitiful state, but that you allow us to see that. We thank you for repentance. We thank you most of all for Jesus and how he answers every one of those issues. We pray all these things in his beloved and precious name. Amen.